Chapter 9, Letters 3 and 4 of Collected Papers on Analytical Psychology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sydney M. Collected Papers on Analytical Psychology by Carl Gustav Jung. Translated by Constance Ellen Long, 1867-1923. to Chapter 9, 3. From Dr. Loy. 2nd, February, 1913. You answer several of my questions in a decidedly affirmative sense. You take it as proved that in the cures by the cathartic method, the main role is played by faith in the doctor and in his method, and not by the ab-reaction of real or imaginary traumata. I also. Equally, I am at one with your view that the cures of the old materia medica of filth, as well as the lordist cures, or those of the mental healers, Christian scientists, and persuasionists, are to be attributed to faith in the miracle worker rather than to any of the methods employed. Now comes the ticklish point. The augur can remain an augur so long as he himself believes the will of the gods is made manifest by the entrails of the sacrificial beast. When he no longer believes, he has to ask himself, shall I continue to use my augur's authority to further the welfare of the state? Or shall I make use of my newer, and, I hope, truer convictions of today? Both ways are possible. The first is called opportunism, the second the pursuit of truth and scientific honor. For a doctor, the first way brings, perhaps, therapeutic success and fame, the second reproach, such a man is not taken seriously. What I esteem most highly in Freud and his school is just this passionate desire for truth. But again, it is precisely here that people pronounce a different verdict. Quote, It is impossible for the busy practitioner to keep pace with the development of the views of this investigator and his initiates. End quote. Frank, Affixtrongen einleiten. One can easily disregard this little quip, but one must take more seriously one's self-criticism. We may have to ask ourselves whether, since science is an undivided, ever-flowing stream, we are justified in relinquishing, on conscientious grounds, any method or combination of methods by means of which we know cures can be achieved. Looking more closely at the fundamental grounds of your aversion to the use of hypnosis, or semi-hypnosis the degree matters nothing, in treatment by suggestion, which, as a matter of fact, every doctor and every therapeutic method makes use of willy-nilly, no matter what it is called, it is clear that what has disgusted you in hypnotism is at bottom nothing but the so-called transference to the doctor, which you, with your unalloyed psychoanalytic treatment, can get rid of as little as anyone else, for indeed it plays a chief part in the success of the treatment. Your insistence that the psychoanalyst must be answerable for the cleanness of his own hands, here I agree with you unreservedly, is an inevitable conclusion. But after all, does anything more augurish really cling to the use made of hypnosis and psychotherapeutic treatment than to the quite inevitable use made of the transference to the doctor for therapeutic ends? In either case, we must perforce take shares in faith as a healing agent. As for the feeling which the patient, whether man or woman, entertains for the doctor, is there never anything in the background save conscious or unconscious sexual desire? In many cases, your view is most certainly correct. More than one woman has been frank enough to confess that the beginning of hypnosis was accompanied by voluptuous pleasure. But this is not true in all instances. 
Or how would you explain the underlying feeling in the hypnotizing of one animal by another, e.g. snake and bird? Surely you can say that there, the feeling of fear reigns, fear which is an aversion of the libido, such as comes upon the bride in the hypnoidal state before she yields to her husband, wherein pure sexual desire rules, though possibly it contains an element of fear. However this may be, from your three cases, I cannot draw any ethical distinction between the unconscious readiness towards the hypnotist and the transference to the doctor, which should avail to condemn a combination of hypnotism and psychoanalysis as a method of treatment. You will ask why I cling to the use of hypnotism, or rather of hypnoidal states, because I think there are cases that can be much more rapidly cured thereby than through a purely psychoanalytic treatment. For example, in no more than five or six interviews, I cured a 15-year-old girl who had suffered from aneurysis nocturna from infancy, but was otherwise thoroughly healthy, gifted, and preeminent at school. She had previously tried all sorts of treatment without any result. Perhaps I ought to have sought out the psychoanalytic connection between the aneurysis and her psychosexual attitude and explained it to her, etc. But I could not. She had only the short Easter holidays for treatment, so I just hypnotized her and the tiresome trouble vanished. It was a lasting cure. In psychoanalysis, I use hypnosis to help the patient to overcome resistances. Further, I use light hypnosis in association with psychoanalysis to hasten the advance when the re-education stage comes. For example, a patient afflicted with washing mania was sent to me after a year's psychocathartic treatment by Dr. X. The symbolic meaning of her washing ceremonial was first made plain to her. She became more and more agitated during the abreaction of alleged traumata in childhood because she had persuaded herself by auto-suggestion that she was too old to be cured, that she saw no images, etc. So I used hypnosis to help her to diminish the number of her washings so that the anxiety feelings would be banished and to train her to throw things on the ground and pick them up again without washing her hands afterwards etc. In view of these considerations, if you feel disposed to go further into the matter, I should be grateful if you would furnish me with more convincing reasons why hypnotic treatment must be dispensed with, and explain how to do without it or with what to replace it in such cases. Were I convinced, I would give it up as you have done, but what convinced you has so far not convinced me. Si duo faciunt idem, non est idem. Now I want to consider another important matter to which you alluded, but only cursily, and to put one question. Behind the neurotic fantasies there stands, you say, almost always, or always, a moral conflict which belongs to the present moment. That is perfectly clear to me. Research and therapy coincide. Their task is to search out the foundations and the rational solution of the conflict. Good. But can the rational solution always be found? Reasons of expediency so often bar the way varying with the type of patient. For instance, children, young girls, and women from pious Catholic or Protestant families. Again, that accursed opportunism. A colleague of mine was perfectly right when he began to give sexual enlightenment to a young French patient, a boy who was indulging in masturbation. Whereupon, like one possessed, in rushed a bigoted grandmother, and a disagreeable sequel ensued. How to act in these and similar cases? What to do in cases where there arises a moral conflict between love and duty, a conflict in married life, or in general between instinct and moral duty? What to do in the case of a girl afflicted with hysterical or anxiety symptoms, needing love and having no chance to marry, 
either because she cannot find a suitable man or because, being well-connected, she wants to remain chaste. Simply try to get rid of the symptoms by suggestion? But that is wrong as soon as one knows of a better way. How to reconcile these two consciences? That of the man who does not want to confine his fidelity to truth within his own four walls, and that of the doctor who must cure, or if he dare not cure according to his real convictions, owing to opportunist motives, must at least procure some alleviation. We live in the present, but with the ideas and ideals of the future. That is our conflict. How resolve it? 4. From Dr. Yoon. 4th February, 1913. You have put me in some perplexity by the questions in your yesterday's letter. You have rightly grasped the spirit which dictated my last. I am glad you too recognize the spirit. There are not very many who can boast of such tolerance. I should deceive myself if I regarded my standpoint as that of a practical physician. First and foremost, I am a scientist. Naturally, that gives me a different outlook upon many problems. In my last letter, I certainly left out of count the doctor's practical needs, but chiefly that I might show you on what grounds we might be moved to relinquish hypnotic therapy. To remove the first objection at once, let me say that I did not give up hypnotism because I desired to avoid dealing with the basic motives of the human soul but rather because I wanted to battle with them directly and openly. When once I understood what kind of forces play a part in hypnotism, I gave it up, simply to get rid of all the indirect advantages of this method. As we psychoanalysts see regretfully every day, and our patients also, we do not work with a transference to the doctor, but against it and in spite of it. It is just not upon the faith of the sick man that we can build, but upon his criticism, so much would I say at the outset upon this delicate question. As your letter shows, we are at one in regard to the theoretical aspect of treatment by suggestion, so we can now apply ourselves to the further task of coming to mutual understanding about the practical question. Your remarks on the physician's dilemma, whether to be magician or scientist, bring us to the heart of the discussion. I strive to be no fanatic, although there are not a few who reproach me with fanaticism. I contend not for the application of the psychoanalytic method solely and at all costs, but for the recognition of every method of investigation and treatment. I was a medical practitioner quite long enough to realize that practice obeys and should obey other laws than does the search after truth. One might almost say practice must first and foremost submit to the laws of opportunism. The scientist does great injustice to the practitioner if he reproaches him for not using the one true scientific method. As I said to you in my last letter, a truth is a truth when it works. But on the other hand, the practitioner must not reproach the scientist if in his search for truth and for newer and better methods, he makes trial of unusual ways. After all, it is not the practitioner, but the investigator, and the latter's patient, who will have to bear any injury that may arise. The practitioner must certainly use those methods which he knows how to use to the greatest advantage, and which give him the best relative results. My tolerance indeed extends, as you see, even to Christian science. But I deem it most uncalled for that Frank, a practicing doctor, should depreciate research in which he cannot participate, and particularly the very line of research to which he owes his own method. It is surely time to cease this running down of every new idea. No one asks Frank and all whom he represents to become psychoanalysts. We grant them the right to their existence. Why should they always seek to cut ours short? As my own cures show you, 
I do not doubt the effect of suggestion, only I had the idea that I could perhaps discover something still better. This hope has been amply justified. Not forever shall it be said, the good attained is oft of fairer, still the enemy calling it vain illusion, falsehood's snare. I confess frankly, were I doing your work, I should often be in difficulties if I relied only on psychoanalysis. I can scarcely imagine it a general practice, especially in a sanatorium, with no other means than psychoanalysis. At Dr. Britcher's sanatorium in Zurich, the principle of psychoanalysis is adopted completely by several of the assistants, but a whole series of other important educative influences are also brought to bear upon the patients, without which matters would probably go very badly. In my own purely psychoanalytic practice, I have often regretted that I could not avail myself of the other methods of re-education that are naturally at hand in an institution. This, of course, only in special cases where one is dealing with extremely uncontrolled, uneducated persons. Which of us has shown any disposition to assert that we have discovered a panacea? There are cases in which psychoanalysis operates less effectively than any other known method. But who has ever claimed psychoanalysis should be employed in every sort of case and on every occasion? Only a fanatic could maintain such a view. Patients for whom psychoanalysis is suitable have to be selected. I unhesitatingly send cases I think unsuitable to other doctors. As a matter of fact, this does not happen often because patients have a way of sorting themselves out. Those who go to an analyst usually know quite well why they go to him and not to someone else. However, there are very many neurotics well-suited for psychoanalysis. In these matters, every scheme must be looked at in due perspective. It is never quite wise to try to batter down a stone wall with your head. Whether simple hypnotism, the cathartic treatment, or psychoanalysis shall be used must be determined by the conditions of the case and the preference of the particular doctor. Every doctor will obtain the best results with the instrument he knows best. But barring exceptions, I must say definitely that for me and for my patients also, psychoanalysis proves itself better than any other method. This is not merely a matter of feeling. From manifold experiences, I know many cases can indeed be cured by psychoanalysis, which are refractory to all other methods of treatment. I have many colleagues whose experience is the same, even men engaged exclusively in practice. It is scarcely to be supposed that a method altogether contemptible would meet with so much support. When once psychoanalysis has been applied in a suitable case, it is imperative that rational solutions of the conflicts should be found. The objection is at once advanced that many conflicts are intrinsically incapable of solution. That view is sometimes taken because only an external solution is thought of, and that, at bottom, is no real solution at all. If a man cannot get on with his wife, he naturally thinks the conflict would be solved if he were to marry someone else. If such marriages are examined, they are seen to be no solution whatsoever. The old Adam enters upon the new marriage and bungles it just as badly as he did the earlier one. A real solution comes only from within, and only then because the patient has been brought to a new standpoint. Where an external solution is possible, no psychoanalysis is necessary. In seeking an internal solution, we encounter the peculiar virtues of psychoanalysis. The conflict between love and duty must be solved upon that particular plane of character where love and duty are no longer in opposition, for indeed they really are not so. The familiar conflict between instinct and conventional morality must be solved in such a way 
that both factors are taken satisfactorily into account, and this is only possible through a change of character. This change, psychoanalysis can bring about. In such cases, external solutions are worse than none at all. Naturally, the particular situation dictates which road the doctor must ultimately follow, and what is then his duty. I regard the conscious searching question of the doctor's remaining true to his scientific convictions as rather unimportant in comparison with the incomparably weightier question as to how he can best help his patient. The doctor must, on occasion, be able to play the auger, mundus volt decipi, but the cure is no deception. It is true that there is a conflict between ideal conviction and concrete possibility, but we should ill prepare the ground for the seed of the future were we to forget the tasks of the present and sought only to cultivate ideals. That is but idle dreaming. Do not forget that Kepler cast horoscopes for money and that countless artists have been condemned to work for wages. End of chapter 9, letters 3 and 4. Recording by Sydney M.